Well, right now, if you have a Bible, I want you to get straight to the book of Genesis chapter 37. If you're rocking old school, it's a book. If you're rocking new school, it's an app. Either way, get your Bible open. We want you to be bringing your Bible, even though we put it up on the screen. That's just sort of a unique tool that we use, but it's good for you to get acquainted with your own Bible so you see where things fall on the page, right? That's the heart behind it. So get to Genesis chapter 37. We don't have a great deal of time to uh, go into some really clever introduction, but I think that's good because when we walk through this story, there are a ton of things that we want to unpack. In fact, even for me this week, studying for this was so hard because the story of Joseph is one of my favorite stories. I mean, there's just so much in there that throughout the course of my life even, I've had to cleave to the truths of that story and remind myself that this is the God that I serve. The same God that Jacob served, the same God that Joseph served, the same God that Isaac served, Abraham served, I serve. And yet I see even more clearly than they do because of Christ. Right? They wish they could have the clarity that even I have today. And so, all the more, this story speaks to me. Because there's so much that we can learn from this life. Now, the place I want to start is actually right at the beginning of chapter 37. It begins with thinking about life after Isaac. When we were here last week, we learned about Abraham and Isaac, and that God called Abraham to sacrifice everything to trust Him fully and completely. And Abraham does, and he puts his son on the altar, and God says, no, 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 wait, don't take your son. I will give my son instead of you giving your son. And so we all said, amen. That changes everything. Well, after that scene, Isaac grows up, and he marries a woman, and they have twins, Jacob and Esau. Now, Esau is a very ugly, hairy kid. That's the only way I can put it. He's ugly, he's hairy, they even notice that, like he's more like, ugh, that's an ugly furball. Alright, so, but he's the oldest. And then they have Jacob, and he's the younger one, and you would think, well, Jacob might be the more favored one because he's not Chewbacca. You know, like, like, that could be good. Um, But Jacob, he, he is not exactly the most honest individual. In fact, when you read the story of Jacob, sometimes you're shocked that God's favor was on Jacob. Jacob would be the one that God would use because Jacob all the time is kind of playing the angles and lying and doing these different things to try to get ahead. He's never quite uh, impressive from a character perspective until the very first ultimate fighting championship in the Bible where he wrestles with God. They get into the octagon and God wins and he taps out. And when he taps out, everything is different. Right? All right, God, I'm going to try to play by your rules, do it in your way. I'm going to honor your spirit. I'm going to abide by your word. And so Jacob seeks to do that in his life. And so we understand the lineage. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. So now we get to chapter 37, verse 1. It says, so Jacob settled again in the land of Canaan, where his father had lived as a foreigner. This is the account of Jacob and his family. So, I, I tell you that so you get a sense of, oh, okay, here's who we're dealing with. This is a family that's familiar, at least to some degree, right? We're kind of working our way through history. And as we get to this particular family, we're going to find that among the sons of Jacob, there's this one average Joe. And he's an average Joe. You're going to think he's not average. 
we're going to see by the end, he's remarkably average in a lot of ways and very easy to identify with, but he's an average Joe. And it says in verse 2, when Joseph was 17 years old, he often tended his father's flocks. He worked for his half-brothers, the sons of his father's wives, Billa and Zilpha. Now, I look at those two ladies' names right there, I'm like, I don't picture them to be attractive women. Honestly, I'm like, if this was being made into, like, a movie of the week, I'm like, uh, Honey Boo Boo's mom. And (laughs) judge me all you want, you know it's true. And maybe Roseanne Barr. All right, I'm sorry, okay, I got it on my way. So, right, I just just got a picture, like, those are the kinds of women that these women are, right? And so, here's this kid, Joseph. He's growing up in this home, but this is, again, for his day, relatively normal, this whole sister-wives gig, right? So, this guy's got a lot of moms, which has got to be a handful. I know my youngest son is like, Dad, I have a grandma, I have a mom, I have two sisters. Oh, like, I have four moms. I'm like, well, that's kind of like Joseph here. That's kind of his problem as well. But he's an average guy. He's growing up on the family ranch. He has ranching responsibilities, Right? He works for his brothers as he has all of these mothers. This is just sort of his life. On top of it, it says he's 17 years old. So if you've ever had a 17-year-old, you know what you have in Joseph. Right? He's very opinionated. He's going to be headstrong. He's going to be very confident about some of his ideas and thoughts. But he's also at an age where, at least according to this story, there's a certain level of wanting to uh, kind of keep his father's favor, uh, let his father know that he is one to be really reckoned with, to be recognized, to be known. And so he does things sort of for his father's approval. And so as the story continues, we see that Joseph reported to his father some of the bad things his brothers were doing. Right? So here he is growing up on the ranch. He's got multiple moms, got a regular kind of life for the day, everything else. But he's got all these older brothers. He's one of the babies in the family. And he's just a tattletale. Right? So when they do something bad, they go, he goes to his father. Now, in some ways you could say that's good. Like, well, Joseph's looking out for his father's interests. That's a good thing. But in the Hebrew language, the way it reads here is that he was only picking out the bad things the brothers were doing. And coming and telling dad, oh, guess what they did? If you've ever had a younger sibling, you know this one. Right? I mean, all the time. You know what I mean? Like, my brother would come in, he was younger than me, he'd come in and he'd hit me. And so I'd punch him. And what would he do? Mom! And then he fake cry, you know, and I get in trouble, I mean, but he started like, I don't care who started it. I'm finishing it now, young man, you know, like that whole game, right? So, you know, Joseph knew the plan, right? He knew how to make this thing roll. That's his deal. So he's telling dad, dad, oh, by the way, you know what? These guys aren't always so good. All right. And he has that little smirk as the brothers are glaring at him, you know, like that. So he is a tattletale. In other words, Joseph, for all of his good qualities that we're going to eventually see, he starts out like everybody else, average, with his own challenges, his own biases, his own insecurities, his own agenda, his own priorities. All of that comes into play. And so he's a little bit of this tattletale. What makes it worse is not just that he tells on his brothers, but Joseph probably senses something that the other brothers sense as well, and that is he's a daddy's boy. Right? He's one of the youngest ones. There's only one younger than him, Benjamin, and so he's a daddy's boy. In fact, it says Jacob 
loved Joseph more than any of his other children because Joseph had been born to him in his old age. I don't know if that was like, yeah, I still got it. That's why I love him. I don't, you know, like, I was like very old and still can sire children. I'm awesome. You know, I don't, I don't know if that's why he loved him. But the strange thing here is it says he loved him more than the others. Like in my family, I have three kids. And one of my habits, when my kids are all sitting in the living room, I'll come in and say, Grayson, man, you are my favorite. I love you. Right? And then like 10 minutes later, I'll come in and say, Emma, you're my favorite. I love you. And about another five minutes later, Honor, did I tell you? You are my favorite. And I love you. The difference here is that actually dad would say, uh, no, that one's my favorite. What about the rest of us? You're fine. You work hard, but he's my favorite. How do you think that bodes well? in any universe, right? That you have a favored child and you let the other kids know, love you all, but you, awesome. Right? I mean, this is setting up a story here. We're going to understand the story as it goes, but this is part of the fabric of the problem, right? So he loves this son so much that it says, one day Jacob had a special gift made for Joseph, a beautiful robe. It's like the other 11. Hey, you need to go work. You, I got a box for you, right? I mean, this is, this is some stuff that's going to create some turbulence and not just that it's a gift. Uh, Here's one of those things we have to correct Uh, as kids growing up. If you've been to the ridiculous play, Joseph and his Technicolor Dreamcoat, um, not necessarily a a robe of many colors. That, that's the way we sort of understand it, but that's not the idea. In Hebrew, the idea is that Joseph is given a robe with a long set of sleeves that have stripes. The stripes are rank. All right, so what happens is that Joseph is second to last in age. But his father rolls in and he sees something in Joseph, something in his leadership, something in his responsibilities. And he says, even though I have all these older sons, you're becoming foreman to the ranch. Here's your robe with many stripes. Here's your new rank. So not only is he favored, but uh, basically what happens is Jacob just disrupts the system and makes Joseph the guy in charge. I mean, this is a big, big no-no in the culture, right? Somehow father sees an impressive young man, but the, the, the sons, they're not going to see that. So in verse 4 it says, but the brothers hated Joseph because their father loved him more than the rest of them. And they could not say a kind word against him. Or a kind word to him, right? They couldn't say anything peaceful, literally, to him. And I don't know if you've ever been in that situation again. If you have siblings, I I firsthand understand the feelings of the brothers. I don't read this and go, man, these brothers are just punks. I get it because I grew up with three other brothers. I'm the oldest of four. I'm also the only one where my father never bought me a car. Yeah, I know. I know. You all should pitch in and buy me one to make up for that. Um, Fill up my emotional child bank, all right? So, um, no, but and I remember, like, growing up, going, well, that's not fair. I'm, I'm the responsible one. I didn't do drugs or anything. You know what I mean? Like, you know, like, I got my whole pride issue in this. So I can understand the motivation of the brothers. Now, is my attitude good? No. Growing up with those, those dispositions of this isn't fair, is that healthy? No. But that's where these brothers are at. And so anytime Joseph would roll in, they'd be, hi guys, and I'm like, shut up, Jojo. 
Hey, where are you guys going? No place with you, Jojo. You know, just, they didn't like Jojo. They didn't want Jojo. They didn't enjoy Jojo. Dad liked Jojo. Everybody hated Jojo. You're never going to forget his name's Jojo. That's what you know. So how could Jojo possibly make this worse? Oh, it's so good. He's a dreamer. Verse 5, one night Joseph had a dream. And when he told his brothers about it, they hated him even more than ever. I mean, imagine this, right? He already knows he's on the straights with these guys. But he goes to sleep one night, has this dream, wakes up, comes running into the kitchen. Fellas, fellas, this is awesome. Great, what's so awesome, Jojo the idiot that we don't like? He says, listen to this dream. We were out in a field tying up bundles of grain. Suddenly, my bundle stood up, and your bundles all gathered around me and bowed before mine. Suckers. You know, I mean, like, like, I mean, you know, there's this part of him, you know, it's going to sense the tension and pressure. So now these guys don't just hate him. They like double dog hate him. Right. Because he's this little braggart as well. Mr. Fancy Pants Dream Code and braggart and tattletale. This is not going to fare well. So the brothers responded. So you think you will be our king, do you? says, do you actually think that you will reign over us? And so they hated him all the more because of his dreams and the way he talked about them. So he was talking about them, you know, like, ah, you know, they're not so bright, you know, collective IQ, 72. You know, like, like, I think that was his mindset to these guys. And so you notice they hate, they hate some more, they hate even some more. So how can he fix this? Soon, Joseph had another dream. And again, he told his brothers about it. He says, listen, I have another dream. The sun, the moon, even the 11 stars bowed before me. So this time he told the dream to his father as well as his brothers, but his father scolded him. What kind of a dream is that? I mean, even dad who loves him is like, whoa, what is that? That's like you rolling in saying, dad, I want to be an actor. You know, like, what is that thinking? Why are you saying such things? He says, will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow to the ground before you? I love you. You're my favorite. But that's just crazy talk. That's just ridiculous that you would say such a thing. It says, but while his brothers were jealous of Joseph, his father wondered what the dreams meant. So his father scolds him, but he's like, but I've also seen a lot in this kid. The brothers, though, escalate from hate, 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 to here it says jealous. And I don't want to capture this. Uh, this word jealous, uh, what it's saying in the original context of the language, is not saying that they were coveting what Joseph had. They weren't like, oh man, if I could just have that coat. If I could just have God's favor through my father, and my father would love me like Joseph. No, they're envious. And here's the difference. Coveting says, I want what you have. Envious says, I want you to lose what you have. I don't care if I have it. I just want it to be stripped of you so you're miserable like me. I don't need that. I just need you to be awful and terrible and just completely wallowing in your own stuff just like I am. That's what they want for him now. They don't want to earn anything. They just have resentment. And yet I understand because, again, what is their brother? He's a dreamer and he's a leader. 
And here's the odd thing about dreamers and leaders. Everybody says they want a dreamer and a leader in their life until they get one. Right? We all say, oh man, we need leadership until you get a leader who's really certain about where they're going. And then everybody goes, whoa, wait, wait, that guy's too aggressive. That guy's got too many opinions. And then if they start dreaming, oh no, because dreams are like kind of out there, they're eclectic, they're hard to grab onto. And everybody goes, whoa, whoa, wait, we want control, we want sanity, we want the, the sense of predictability. But the dreamers don't give you that. Right? Dreamers give you this pie-in-the-sky idea that seems completely impossible and crazy. And if it's a dreamer leader, oh man, buckle up, five point, you're going for a ride. And so dreamer leaders are usually only appreciated after the fact. Rarely in the context of. And, and, and so in the context, all they know is that Joseph is these things that they detest. And they've gone from hate to double hate to triple hate to just downright resentment. We just want to take from you everything that makes you happy. Everything that gives you purpose. Everything that defines your life. We want removed. Now, as they're plotting all of that, here's the great thing about Joseph. Joseph is still obedient. He knows the tension. But he's still obedient, and he's now kind of, again, the foreman of the ranch. And so in verse 12 of Genesis 37, so so soon after this, Joseph's brothers went to pasture their father's flocks in Shechem. And when they'd been gone for some time, Jacob said to Joseph, your brothers are pasturing the sheep out in Shechem. Get ready for all I will send you to them. And he said, I am ready to go. Right? So... I'm in. Dad, you want me to do it? I'll do it. And this is going to be a long ways, right? Shechem's about 50 miles away. And when he gets to Shechem, he finds out his brothers aren't there, so he has to go another 14 miles, right? So, so he's looking around. He's hunting for his brothers. He's trying to find them. He's hard looking. And yet while he's hard looking because he actually cares and he's faithful to his family and he wants to do the right thing, even when things are tense, you've got his brothers, And they're hard-looking in a completely different way because they have a motivation to do some butt-kicking. That's their heart. That's their agenda. Verse 18 says, When Joseph's brothers saw him coming, they recognized him in the distance. Little braggart fancy jacket, right? So, we see him. Can't miss that coat. Right? They see him coming. And as he approached, they made plans to kill him. said, here comes the dreamer. Come on, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns. And then we can tell our father, wild animals came and they ate him. And we will see what becomes of his dreams. I mean, I look at that and I go, man, alive. Like, like when I was a kid, I would just spit on my brother's chocolate milk if I was, you know what I mean? Like, like, I do nothing. You know what I mean? Like, like that. I throw cold water over the shower curtain, like, ah, revenge, you know? These guys kill him, right? Chuck him in a hole, be done with the guy. It's just crazy, right? But that's what they want to do. It says, but when Reuben heard of the scheme, he came to Joseph's rescue. He says, let's not kill him. Why should there be any bloodshed? Let's just throw him in an empty cistern in the wilderness, and he'll die without us laying any hand on him. See? Clean hands, clean hands. Right? Now, what... It doesn't come up in, in, in the slides here is that he planned to kind of rescue his brother and get him out. There's something in Reuben that's like, this has just gone a little too far, right? He senses that. But it's not enough to kind of change some of the trajectory. And so in verse 23, it says, so when Joseph arrived, his brothers ripped off the beautiful robe he was wearing, and then they grabbed him and threw him into the cistern. 
It says, now the cistern was empty, for there was no water in it. I mean, imagine the scene, right? Here comes Joseph walking up, checking on his brothers, trying to be faithful, and it's just a, just a mob, Right? These brothers all just start attacking him. And literally, it says they're stripping the robe from his body like a dog strips meat from a carcass. I mean, there's nothing like, hey, let's take off the robe. You know, it's not that. I mean, they're popping him and hitting him and brutalizing the guy, tearing his clothes off. And there he's naked. And then they take him and they throw him into a pit. This pit is probably anywhere from eight feet to 20 feet deep. No water, rock bottom, naked, tossed. It wasn't like, let's lower him down, you know. I mean, this is some harsh stuff. I mean, this is brutal. I mean, some of us grew up in in pretty aggressive homes. I grew up in an aggressive home where my brother and I, we would fight with sticks and bats. I still have a scar where he stabbed me in the leg. We were rough, right? Doesn't even compete, though. Not at all. I mean, this is completely just crazed, harsh, and it's amazing because within the span of about 20 minutes, 20 years will be set. These few fleeting moments of anger, frustration, wrath, hatred will shape the course of their entire lives. But these guys are spiteful, in fact, so spiteful. After they tear and strip and carry and chuck, you know what they do? They eat. They eat. It's like, hey, you just chucked your brother into a well. What are you going to do now? Find out who brought the Lunchables. You know, I mean, it's like, Like, they're just heartless. Hey, we're done. Where's the food? Let's eat. So they sat down to eat. After beating the clothes off their little brother, they just start to eat. And then they look up and they saw a caravan of camels in the distance coming toward them. And it was a group of Ishmaelites. Remember Ishmael? That can never be good. All right. But there were traders taking a load of gum and balm and and, uh, aromic resin. I'm like, really? That's... Pretty popular there. All right. Uh, And they're going to Egypt. And so the brothers then say, well, what we gain by killing our brother? Uh, We'd have to cover up the crime instead of hurting him. Let's just sell him to those traitors. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood, though we hate his guts and want him to die. Um, And so his brothers all agreed with Judah. Yeah, let's, let's do that. And so the traitors came by. The brothers pulled him out of the cistern. They sold him for 20 pieces of silvers, and then the traders took him to Egypt. But then the brothers had to come up with, well, how do we, how do we deal with what we say to our father and why his beloved son is missing? And so they killed a young goat, and they dipped Joseph's robe in the blood, and they sent the beautiful robe to their father with the message, look what we found. Doesn't this robe belong to your son? Right? You know, like... And the father recognized it immediately. He said, yes, this is my son's robe. Wild animals must have eaten him. Joseph has clearly been torn to pieces. And then Jacob tore his clothes and dressed in burlap. He mourned deeply for his son for a long time. I mean, you think about this gift given in deep love. Right? Then torn from his body in burning hate. And now used for wicked deception. I mean, these guys have really done Joseph wrong. I don't know if you can kind of grab a hold of that. But, but think about times in your life where somebody's really done you wrong, where you know their motive was hate, where their, their, their ambition was rooted in envy. They didn't want what you have. They just wanted to destroy what you have. 
They wanted to make your life miserable. And they set out to make it their chief mission in life. If you've been there, you know how this feels. I mean, this is what he's going through. Hated by family. People driven to ruin him. Betrayed, beaten, abandoned, sold as a slave. And I don't know about you, but if that's my situation, and when I've been in some situations where things are going bad, you know what my first response is? Where's God in all of that? I mean, if he cares, if he gives a rip at all about what's going on with me, he's going to do something. He's going to intervene. He's going to stop their injustice. He's going to let them know they're wrong. He's going to let the world know I'm right by making me feel happy again. Because if God really cares, then God's going to intervene. Where is God? Genesis 39, 2, the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord is with him. The Lord was with him when he goes on the 50-mile walk. The Lord is with him when he goes on the 14-mile walk. The Lord is with him when he gets his clothes ripped off. The Lord is with him when he gets beaten. The Lord is with him when he's thrown in a hole. The Lord is with him when he's on camels going to Egypt. The Lord is always with him. When we have problems and we say, where's God? The answer is with you. He's with you. You may not always feel he's with you. You may wonder, is he paying attention? Does he care? When's he going to act? You may become resentful because he doesn't do what you want him to do. But I'm telling you, the Lord is with you. As the Lord was with Joseph, he is a slave. He is a slave, though, with God. God is his shotgun bud, his partner, his Lord, his master, his savior, his caretaker, everything. And so the Lord was with Joseph as he sold into slavery in Egypt. He sold to the home of Potiphar. And as he's there in Potiphar's home, says so he succeeded in everything that he did as he served in the home of the Egyptian master. Potiphar noticed this and realized that the Lord is with Joseph, giving him success in everything he did. This pleased Potiphar, so he made Joseph his personal attendant. He put him in charge of the entire household and everything he owned. From the day Joseph was put in charge of his master's household and property, the Lord began to bless Potiphar's household for Joseph's sake. Notice Joseph is getting very limited dividends in comparison to Potiphar. But it's for Joseph's sake. It says, All of his household affairs ran smoothly, and his crops and his livestock flourished. So Potiphar gave Joseph complete administrative responsibility over everything he owned. With Joseph there, he did not worry about a thing except what kind of food to eat. That's awesome. Hot pockets or pizza pockets. You know, like, I want that. Right? And, and notice Joseph. He goes from servant to assistant to administrator. I mean, he's, he's working up the ladder of responsibility, right? And I think this makes sense, right? Back home on the ranch, he showed leadership, sometimes imperfectly, and I think he learns from that. So now he's in a new environment, equally has the risk of hostility, but here he's just faithful, keeps his nose down, does the right thing in right ways all the time, and so he just moves up, and God is blessing that home because of Joseph. Now again, is Joseph being blessed? Not maybe in the most overt sense. He's working. But he's being blessed in the deeper sense because God is working something in Joseph. As Joseph works in this home. Now in this, we could say, well, you know, man, life's good. Thanks for sailing. Maybe this was a good move after all. Right? His brothers were punks anyway. Why not? Why not be in Egypt and 
have the good life. You know, being like Jeeves isn't so bad in Egypt. Well, he's an average Joe, but he does have problems. Verse 6b. It says, Joseph was very handsome and a well-built young man. Team Jacob. All right. All four of you know. All right, so... Um, and Potiphar's wife soon began to look on him lustfully. Come and sleep with me. Meow, Kuga. All right, so... And she demands it. This is why the Egyptians worship cats right here. All right, so... Um, it's a freebie for just showing up. All right, so she, she is Cougarville here, right? Cougartown all the way. She looks at this young man and says, I would like that. I want that. I have power. I have demands. And think about Joseph. He's like late teens, early 20s. I mean, he's not like, I'm empty on the emotion and kind of other things. I mean, you know, he's, like, he's a young man. Right? He's got testosterone. He's going to have temptations. He's going to have these things because of who he is. And then on top of it, he can say, oh, and by the way, you know, I was rejected by my home and I'm a victim and I've been so hurt and nobody's hugged me in a while. She wants to hug me. You know, like, he could do that. He's human. He's been rejected. Somebody has a unique interest in him that has profound affection. Right? He's got problems. He's got Mrs. Robinson. She's interested. Right? All the young people are like, I don't even know what that means, right? <laughs> At all. But then all the older people are like, team who? You know, Jacob? Who's that? Um, we bridge the cultural divide. All right. So, man, come sleep with me. She demands it. The great thing about Joseph is he has convictions. He says, but Joseph refused. He says, look. He says, my master trusts me with everything in his entire household, including you on his bed, right? That's what he's saying. He says, no one here has more authority than I do. He has held back nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How could, you, how could I do such a wicked thing? It would be a great sin against God. I love this. Three things he says. First, he says, I'm trusted, so no. Second, he says, you're married, so no. But the third is the best. The third is awesome because he says, and because it's sin against God. No. I'll tell you why I love this. Um, This is the first time in the entire story that Joseph mentions God. Doesn't mention God through all of chapter 37, all the stuff at the house. Doesn't mention God. The first time he mentions God is after his family's chucked him in a hole, rejected him, hated him. He's a slave. Now he's in this situation of temptation. And instead of him saying, you know what? God's done nothing for me, so why should I do anything for God? He says, no, no, no. More than anything else, I'm concerned that my actions would sin against God. I mean, easily somebody can say, oh, dude, I'm not sure God has been that concerned about your problems. But he believes God has been concerned, that God does care, that God is invested. And he says, so this would be a great sin against God. It says in verse 10, she kept pressuring Joseph day after day. All you women think about is sex. We're not objects, ladies, all right? So, um, (laughs) poor, poor Joseph, all right? So, but he refused to sleep with her because this dude's a stud. And so he kept out of her way as much as possible. He didn't toy with temptation. He just 
She's on the east wing, I'm on the west wing. She's inside, I'm outside. Let's try to work this out as best as I can, because I'm still a slave, I can't just leave. It says, one day, however, no one else was around when he went in to do his work, and she came and she grabbed him by his cloak, demanding, come on, sleep with me! And Joseph tore himself away, but left his cloak in her hands, and he ran from the house. Literally, he's going to be running naked, right? It's just him and his Nikes, that's it. He's just running. But again, connect the dots. There was another time in Joseph's life where his cloak was stripped from him, and, and things go pretty south after that. And now again, here's this time. He's wearing this cloak, and he gets stripped from him. And it's stripped from him, and as soon as it is, he faces a false accusation. Verse 13. It says, When she saw that she was holding his cloak and that he had fled, she called out to the servants. Soon all the men came running. She says, Look, my husband has brought this Hebrew slave here to make fools of us, Right? He came into my room to rape me, but I screamed. And when he heard me scream, he ran out and got away, but he left his cloak behind me. It's like boots under the bed. That's what she's saying. She kept his cloak until her husband came home, and then she told him the story, right? And what does she say? That Hebrew slave you brought into the house tried to come in and fool around with me. I mean, this is awesome. She's like the real wives of Egypt right here. Because, like... I mean, honestly, do you see what she does? She, she doesn't say what he did. She, she's literally like, uh, Potiphar, this is kind of your problem. You brought the Hebrew here, and then he tried to do this, and she's blaming everybody because that's what she does. It's just soap opera. It says, but I screamed, and he ran outside, and he left his cloak with me. It says, and Potiphar was furious when he heard his wife's story about how Joseph had treated her. So he took Joseph and threw him into prison where the king's prisoners were held. And there he remained. Some versions say, threw him into the king's pit. Right? So Joseph has lost a robe twice and found himself in a pit twice. Now, it's interesting here. Um, Potiphar's mad, but he's not that mad. I mean, he's mad for a few reasons. One, he's mad because, you know what? Uh, little daddy Sugarbucks just left the house. I mean, Joseph has been there, and everything that Joseph touches just was prosperous. Now he's like, ah, I lost my riches, and now I've got to worry about more than just my food, right? So he's a little upset about that. He's also upset because his wife is blaming him. This is kind of your fault. He said, why did I brought the guy? He was a good guy. But this also puts him in an awkward position because his wife is making a claim, and if he doesn't do anything, well, that's bad. He has to do something, but he clearly must not believe that Joseph is fully to blame. Otherwise, Joseph would be in a tomb. Instead, he's in the king's prison or the king's pit. This is a political prison, which is different than a hard labor camp that would be for other foreign prisoners. In other words, there is something in Potiphar that says, ah, I don't know, this guy's still useful somehow, in some way, at some point. I'm not going to go ahead and execute him because I don't even think he fully did something wrong here. But I am mad about the whole situation. So he's in jail. And with that, he is unjustly incarcerated. And I'm sure at this point, if you were Joseph, I, I put myself in his Nikes for just a minute, and I go, man, I would look and go, wait a minute. Where's the payoff again, God? There was this temptation. I said no because of you. I resisted from my master. I didn't do anything because she's married. I did everything right, and now I'm in jail? Are you kidding? Where is God again? Twice, where is God? I love this because God is with Joseph. Genesis 39, 21. But the Lord was with Joseph in the prison and showed him his faithful love. Now, I want you to notice, Joseph's doing everything right, especially since he gets to Egypt. Everything right, by the numbers. 
But there's no miraculous deliverance. There's no clarifying memo. All the problems are real, they're raw, they're weighty, they're harsh, they're gritty, they're crushing. And God is with Joseph. Now, God is not necessarily being clear, but He's present. God is working, but God appears to be sort of anonymous, maybe from Joseph's perspective. But God begins to bless Joseph. Now, now this is hard for us, because sometimes we look and we go, well, you know, if it says here that God had faithful love, isn't faithful love that God gives me what I want? Well, no. And we see that there's divine presence, and and, and we sometimes think that, well, divine presence means that God will simplify my problems. No. I mean, you're just going to start to pick up on the story that God can be present, God can be active, God can be with you, and the conditions aren't changing. Or if they're changing, they're getting worse. Don't start thinking, oh, God must not be paying attention if things are getting worse. This is why he keeps saying, and the Lord is with Joseph. Pretty much after every bad thing. And the Lord was with Joseph, and so the Lord made Joseph a favorite with the prison warden. No kidding, really? Can't believe it. It says, before long, the warden put Joseph in charge of all the other prisoners, and over everything that happened in the prison. And then the warden had no more worries, except probably about what to eat, right? Because Joseph took care of everything, and the Lord was with him, and caused everything he did to succeed. Now again, the first time, everything he touches that succeeds is for some pagan ruler. And then the next time, everything he touches is for the sake of some prison warden. But God is using Joseph for great things. Now, what's great about this is, as things unfold, um, Joseph just keeps doing the right thing in right ways. He, he doesn't worry about whether he should be faithful based on conditions. He says, I, the conditions are what they are, so I'm just going to be faithful. So it says, sometime later, Pharaoh's chief cupbearer and chief baker offended their royal master. I don't know what you do. It's like, hey, these crumpets are hard. You know, I, I don't know what you do to make the king mad. You know what I mean? Uh, realistically, both of these offices were the most likely place a pharaoh could be assassinated, right? Poisoning. So these guys probably just didn't have good security measures, whatever it was, made him mad. So pharaoh became angry with these two officials, and he put them in prison where Joseph was, right? And they remained in prison for quite some time. And then the captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph, who looked after them. And while they were in prison, Pharaoh's cupbearer and baker each had a dream one night, and each dream had its own meaning. And when Joseph saw them that next morning, he noticed that they were both upset. And so he says, why do you look so worried? And they replied, we both had dreams last night, but no one can tell us what they mean. I'll tell you what I love about this. Um, Joseph in prison, in dire straits, in just a drag environment, still is caring about other people. You know, sometimes when our life goes sour, what do we do? It's all about me being internalized. It's all about me focusing on me. It's all about me getting discouraged, depressed, uh, downtrodden, because I'm busy looking at my problem. Right? Joseph says, eh, I'm going to start noticing other people. I think it provides great sanity for Joseph, and so he notices these guys are struggling. He says, what's the problem? He said, oh, well, we had some dreams that we don't know what to do with. Now, I read this, and this is completely foreign to me. Absolutely foreign. Here's what you're never going to see. Two dudes, pheasant hunting, sitting in their chairs with their guns. You know, I had a dream the other night. You women love to do that. I don't get it. Like, women get together, oh, I had the craziest dream. Dudes never get together and do that. I guess except in prison, all right? So, they're in prison. 
And we had some crazy dreams, and nobody can explain to us what these dreams mean. So uh, Joseph is going to step up. But I love it because still, average Joe, in prison, incarcerated like the other guys, but caring about other people, he becomes a witness of God. Genesis 40, verse 8. He says, interpreting dreams is God's business. But go ahead and tell me your dreams. I love this because, again, he points immediately to God. Whatever's about to happen next, he says, hey, man, that's going to be God's business. I'm going to let God handle that. God's going to do the heavy lifting. I give God the credit for whatever happens. The same God we can say, where has he been? Why hasn't he cared? Where's the investment? Joseph just keeps giving God credit. He just keeps saying, God is good. I'm going to trust God, right? So the first dream is the dream of the cupbearer where he says, well, there was this vine and these clusters of grapes, and then I squeezed them into this cup of the king. And uh, that, that's what it was. So what does it mean? And then in verse 12, it says, this is what the dream means, Joseph said. The three branches represent three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift you up and restore you to the position of the chief cupbearer. I'm sure the cupbearer is like, yes, right? It's awesome. I'm getting out of jail. I'm going to get my job back. How great is that? But then you also see the humanness of Joseph. He's like, man, God gets the credit. He says, but please remember me and do not, and show me favor when things go well with you. Mention me to Pharaoh so that he might let me out of this place where I was kidnapped from my household in the land of the Hebrews and now I'm here in prison and I did nothing to deserve it. I, I'm not supposed to be here, right? But please remember me and I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. I'm going to keep giving God the credit and I'm going to keep serving as I'm supposed to serve. But boy, remember me. Well, then the other guy hears that explanation. So what's he say? Do me, do me, do me, please. Tell me my do. So then he explains the dream that he has. He says, three baskets of pastries on my head and the birds came and ate these pieces of bread out of the basket. What does it mean? And Joseph says, this is what the dream means. The three baskets also represent three days and three days from now, Pharaoh will lift you up and pale your body on a pole. Then the birds will come and peck away at your flesh. I mean, can you imagine the scene? He's like, and peck away at your flesh. You're gonna eat that? You know what I mean? Like, because you're not gonna need it. You know what I mean? Like, can we go through your pockets now? Because that'll, you know. Um, like, you're, you're dead. And I'm sure the guy's like, ugh! Shouldn't have asked, right? So that's the line. And then three days later, it came to pass exactly as it was told. Joseph was faithful and forgotten. Verse 23, Pharaoh's chief cupbearer, however, forgot all about Joseph, never giving him another thought. Again, what could he say? But I was faithful. I, I, I was caring. I was innocent. I was invested. I was involved. I did all you asked, God. I keep delivering. I keep showing up to give you credit. I keep giving you glory. And you keep giving me the shaft. I'm in an empty well all the time. There's nothing in here for me. That's what he could do. What we have to understand about the story is that delay never turns God's plans a different direction. God's plans never get off kilter because of delay, but they do polish our faith, our motives, and our character. That is what delay does. And so there is delay. And so imagine, the, the uh, chief cupbearer leaves three days later. It's all good to go. Joseph's waiting, and he's just forgotten. A couple of days, no, no, he'll, he'll remember me couple of weeks, I, I, he's probably busy getting back into the swing of work, crazy schedule, Pharaoh likes wine, I don't know. Weeks go by, then months, then a year, then a year and a half, 
right? The, the, just, it just keeps going and going and going until it says in verse 1 of Genesis 41, two full years later. Two years. I mean, think about it. Two years is a long time. But after two years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing on the beach of the Nile River. And he has this crazy set of dreams where he, he dreams that out of the Nile there's these big cows that are feeding and, and, and then these skinny cows come out of the Nile and eat the big cows. And then he has this dream about these stalks of grain that have these plump heads on them. And, and then they're kind of taken over by these scrawny heads of grain and they're destroyed by an east wind. It's just this crazy dream. And, and Pharaoh's really concerned about this because for Egypt, they had a relatively stable economy. Because of the Nile. Like, everybody else was dependent on rainfall, but the Nile was like this irrigation, you know, like, superstructure, right? They, they just run the water to the crops. They always did pretty well, therefore the cattle did well. And now he's having a dream where somehow the Nile is involved in destruction or eradication or whatever else. This country is going to falter somehow, perhaps. And so he doesn't know what this means, so he's freaked out. And typically, Pharaoh's pretty good at interpreting dreams. This is what they're skilled at, in fact. But he has problems. So the next morning, Pharaoh was very disturbed by the dream. So he called all of the magicians and the wise men of Egypt, and, and, and then he told them his dream, but none of them can tell what it meant. But then finally, the king's chief cupbearer spoke up. He says, today I have remembered my failures. That's a good way to start off when you're in front of the king, right? I remember when I was in jail. Were you rightly put me, sire? You know, like that? And I remember my failures. Some time ago, you were angry with me, the chief baker, and you imprisoned both of us in the place of the captain of the guard, uh, in the palace of the captain of the guard, rather. And one night, the chief baker and I each had a dream. And we came across this young Hebrew man who was a slave of the captain of the guard, and we told him our dreams. And he told us what each of our dreams meant, and everything happened just as it was predicted. And Pharaoh was so intrigued by this that it says he sent for Joseph at once, and Joseph was quickly brought from the pit or from the prison, all right? Now, this is where it gets cool because we see where our average Joe continues to be faithful and now he's faithful and fearless. He's fearless. So it says, after he shaved and changed his clothes, by the way, that means bald head, bald be- face, not, I mean, there's, this, he's going full Egyptian here, all right? He's dressing Egyptian, looking Egyptian. He stood before Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream last night and no one here can tell me what it meant, but I've heard that when you hear about a dream, you can interpret it. Now this is where Joseph is completely fearless. He says, listen, it's beyond my power to do that. But God can tell you what it means and set you at ease. This is why Joseph's so cool. The first thing he says is, Pharaoh, let me correct your misunderstanding. I don't have that power. Right? I mean, you think about this as Joseph's moment to get out of prison. Don't you think he would show up and say, okay, I'm going to play by the rules. I'm going to be a nice guy. I'm going to tell him he wants, wants to hear. I'm going to bow when I'm supposed to bow. I'm going to stand when I'm supposed to stand. I'm not going to get in any trouble. I'm going to fly below the radar. I mean, you think that's what he would do. But his first words are, let me correct that there. I can't do that. The next thing he does is awesome. He gives credit to God. He says, but, but God can do this. Now, here's why this is cool. Um, you know what Pharaoh is? A god. I mean, in the whole land, the way they see pharaohs, that's a god. That's deity in human form. Right? And now Joseph says, ah, there's this bigger god. He can handle this. He can do it. And then he says, I- I- I'm going to tell you things by God's hand that will put you at ease. Now, by at ease, he's not going to tell Pharaoh what Pharaoh wants to hear, but he's going to tell Pharaoh the facts. 
And so this is what's so cool. Verse 25 of Genesis 41 says, Joseph responded, both of Pharaoh's dreams mean the exact same thing. Now, I want you to notice what he keeps saying here. He says, God is telling Pharaoh in advance what he is about to do. Seven years of feast, seven years of famine, all at the hand of God. When we get into, oh, well, how's God involved? And does he bring bad and good? I'm just telling you, he's involved in this whole thing. It says the seven healthy cows or the seven healthy head, and the seven healthy heads of grain both represent seven years of prosperity. Then the thin and scrawny cows came up later, and the seven thin heads of grain referred to the east wind. All of that represents the seven years of famine. This will happen just as I have described, for God has revealed it to Pharaoh in advance, what he is about to do. Right? He goes on to say, these events have been decreed by God, and he will soon make them happen. He keeps saying it. God is telling. God is revealing. God is directing. He keeps pointing to God on, uh, in an environment where there's a, quote, God. Right? Joseph is not ashamed of God at any point. He isn't worried about whether his own neck is at risk in giving God all of the credit and pointing toward the one true God. Right? Well, what's great is he goes on. He doesn't just give himself over to like this passive fatalism. Oh, there's just famine coming after feast. So whatever. Chill. He doesn't get into the philosophical criticism of, why would a good God bring famine? He doesn't do that. He sees the opportunity. He's not just faithful and insightful, he goes from faithful to leading. Verse 33, therefore, says Pharaoh should find an intelligent and wise man and put him in charge of the entire land of Egypt. Pharaoh didn't ask for this. He's like, just tell me the dream, right? Joseph tells him the dream, he's like, oh, but I got more, this is going to be awesome, right? He says, oh, Pharaoh should appoint supervisors over the land and let them collect one-fifth of all the crop during the seven good years. He's given policy now. You should hire a guy, and here's some policy. You need to charge 20% taxation on crops. I mean, so he starts, like, giving policy. He says, have them gather, gather all of the food uh, during the good years uh, and, and have him bring it into the storehouse and store it away, guard it there for all of the cities. It says, then there will be food enough to eat for the seven years of famine that are going to come on the land of Egypt. Otherwise, the famine will destroy the land. I love it because he gives answers and solutions. Answers and solutions. And so with this, the average Joe is elevating God and is elevated in status simultaneously. Verse 37, Joseph's suggestions were received by Pharaoh and his officials. So Pharaoh asked officials, can we find anyone else like this man? So obviously Filled with the Spirit of God. Here's this mighty, powerful Pharaoh, indifferent to many concerns in people's lives. Certainly, why would he care about a Hebrew servant in a prison? And what is his walk away? Because Joseph isn't a coward, he isn't afraid, he doesn't try to put all of this in non-God terms, but he's bold with God. The result is he says, wow, this guy's filled with the Spirit of God. This is an impressive guy. And so he says, man, I'm just putting this guy in charge. He is my new vice president in charge of all grain collection. This guy's an awesome VP. I want this guy. Now, how old is Joseph? He's 30 now. He started at 17. 13 years of rejection, suffering, pain, imprisonment. He's uh, feeling like God maybe wasn't paying attention. God wasn't always there. Seasons were hard. Years were long. And now, finally, because he's been so faithful, God elevates. Now, here's what I want to tell you about our average Joe. I want to tell you some things that are really important about you to own. How you can take this in. Here's the first thing about Joseph. Why I think he's average? 
you haven't noticed it yet. You will not notice it if you read all the way from Genesis 37 all the way to Genesis 50. But never one time ever does it record that God ever spoke to Joseph. Not one time do you say, and the Lord said to Joseph, dude, it's going to be okay. Not once. Just like us, right? I mean, most of the time in our life, we don't have this, uh, in the bathroom, I don't know what to do. All of a sudden, Matt, it'll be fine. Just brush your teeth and go to work. You know, you don't, you don't get that. Joseph didn't get that either. But he kept doing the right thing regardless of whether the conditions were optimal. He just did the right thing because it was right. That's the second thing. First thing, God didn't necessarily speak to Joseph, but Joseph kept trusting God. The second thing is Joseph always did what was right regardless of whether the conditions were good. The third thing is that Joseph constantly injects God into his work and witness. And why this is great is because Joseph is not a religious leader. Joseph is a white-collar guy. Joseph is a blue-collar guy. For everybody in this room that says, oh, no, I'm not a pastor. Well, neither was Joseph. Joseph's busting out with policy and business plans and models and structures and pie charts and flow charts. And all. That's what he's doing. You have more power than I do to affect gospel change in the world because you're in the world. Far more than I have. I come up here on Sunday. I encourage you all. You all go out and go do like Joseph. Right? He did the witness work. He brought good to the country for the glory of God. That's what he did. Another thing about Joseph, he was never a victim. Just never a victim. Wasn't like, oh, woe is me. This isn't fair. I don't like it. He also wasn't harsh in compensating for his lack of being a victim. He remained kind and caring and concerned. And again, he always gave God the credit. He never blamed. He never blamed. And we do that. We have a tendency to do that. He never blamed. And so throughout the story, evil is overt, but providence is covert. Men speak, but God is silent. Plots unfold, but the plan of God is still unstoppable in the life of Joseph. And so from that, there's vindication. Genesis 42, verse 1. When Jacob heard that the grain was available in Egypt, he said to his sons, why are you standing around looking at one another, you dummies? He says, I heard that there's grain down in Egypt, so go down there and buy enough to keep us alive, otherwise we will die. So Joseph's ten older brothers went down to Egypt to buy grain. Since Joseph was governor of all of Egypt and in charge of selling the grain to all the people, it was to him that his brothers came and they arrived and they bowed down before him with their faces to the ground. Sounds like stalks of wheat. It says, although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him and he remembered the dream he had about them many years before. So here it is, right here. Woo. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Nine. Right? I mean, this is the moment. This is where Joseph could say, Ha! I told you so! Suck ass! Right? He could do that. Right? Isn't that what we would want to do? Huh? Wouldn't we want to be like, Oh, man, look who's under the boot now! We would want to do that. I would want to do that. At best, it's I told you so. At worst, it's like, where's the nearest pit? You know, like that's, right? That's what we would do. But Joseph is different because Joseph has been forged. He is different because he's come to see God at a level so different than anybody else might through hardship, adversity, suffering, and pain. And of all the things Joseph could do, you know the first thing he does? After the story kind of unfolds and there's this kind of game that goes on, the first thing he does when he finally reveals is Joseph forgives. I want you to capture that. Joseph forgives. And look how he forgives. Genesis 45, verses 3 through 5. 
right? He finally says to his brothers, I'm Joseph. I'm Joseph. And he's gone through all kinds of emotion too. He's been crying. He's been overwhelmed. He's had to be silent about so much of it. But now he says, I am Joseph. He says, is my father still alive? That father that I love. And his brothers were speechless. He says, they were stunned to realize that Joseph was standing in front of them. And then he says, please come closer. So they came closer and he said again, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into slavery. But don't be upset. Don't be angry with yourselves for selling me into this place. See, this is even bigger than he forgives. He's saying, come close, I forgive. I just love you. I just want it to be right. More than that, forgive yourselves. Don't hold it against yourselves even for what you've done. I mean, again, that is a big man. Right? But this teaches us something about the hardship of life and when people do us wrong, if we go, I'm going to hold on to that. I'm going to be resentful. I'm going to be bitter. I want them to get their own. I'm waiting for the day where I can say, ah, see, I told you. You imprison yourself forever. Forever. You are in a pit deeper, darker, and nastier than Joseph's ever would have been. But Joseph, even though in the pit, doesn't allow his heart to get in the pit. And so he forgives. Not only does he forgive, but then he blesses He says, you can live in the land in the region of Goshen where you can be near me and all your children and grandchildren, your flocks and your herds and everything you own. I will take care of you. For there are still five years of famine ahead. He says, I'm not going to just say, hey, we're good. Good luck. He says, we're good. How can I serve you? How can I love you? How can I protect you? That's blessing. Jesus talks about this. Forgive your enemies and do good to them. Love your enemies and ask that God would bless them. But then the last thing he does is he affirms God in all. He says, I am Joseph, your brother, who you sold into slavery in Egypt. But don't be upset. Don't be angry with yourselves for selling me into this place. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. God has sent me ahead of you to keep you and your families alive. So it was God, right? It was God who sent me here, not you. And he is the one who made me the advisor to Pharaoh. Now hurry back to my father and tell him. This is what your son Joseph says. God has made me master all over all the lands of Egypt. Don't be afraid of me. I'm telling you. I'm not God. I can't punish you. You indeed tried to harm me, but God intended all for good. This is my favorite part of the story. Because here's what we do. We read this and we want to get really philosophical. Uh, well, did God allow or did God cause? Let me get my pipe and my smoking jacket and my philosophy. Like, we do that. Here's the answer. Did God cause or did God allow? Yes. That's it. You go, well, I don't know if that's fair. Stop it. Because that's all we're left with. Joseph, matter of fact, through most of the story, he's saying, uh, God's going to bring a famine as well as he's going to bring a feast. Uh, God did this in my life. God did this in my life. God did this in my life. Now, are these guys off the hook? No. They did things. But God was in control. Because God was in control, Joseph always knew he could do the right thing at every moment because God was in control. Often we choose to disobey because we doubt God's in control. We choose to say, no, 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 I'm going to protect myself because God won't protect me. I'm going to look out for myself because God won't look out for me. I need to defend myself because God won't defend me. I've got to worry about my enemies because God isn't taking care of my enemies. See, Joseph was freed from that. He says, God did it. God did it. And he's going to say, God did it and God's good. 
God did it and God's faithful. God did it and God chose grace. God did it and God was always with me. He didn't always speak to me. In fact, he never spoke to me, but God was always with me, always good, and God did it. For some of us, we get troubled by that. I just used to get so troubled by that. And now I can just sleep like, I'm not a baby because I cry a lot. I sleep like an old man after a good meal. Um, right? Because God's just in control. He's in control. We learn from Joseph that we can live the average Joe life. Romans chapter 8 says, Yet what we now suffer is nothing to be compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. And the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. When Paul says this in Romans 8, he's saying, man, we go through a lot of hardship in life. A lot of hardship. But then he says in verse 28 something brilliant. He says, and we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. We can get sucked in all day to why did this happen? Why did that happen? Why did God allow? And why did God permit? And why did God cause? And I don't know why my life's this way. And why hasn't it changed? And I'm still in this prison in my mind, my heart, my life, my relationship, whatever it is. You can do that all day long. But in that, what you should really say, and God is with me. And God is working it out for my good. And God is good. And God cares about me more than I care about these circumstances. And he's working it all out to some great, ideal, grand that's what we can say let's pray together Jesus I thank you for your word I thank you for this marathon of 13 chapters and why it matters may we trust you as the God in control man we can question all day long where one thing leaves off and the other begins I your God. May we do good in all conditions. We love you and thank you in your awesome name. Amen.